you'll turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 34 through 38, the virgin birth. Luke 1, 34 through 38, hear now the word of God. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren, for with God nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would come to grasp the meaning of this, not only at whatever level you would have us know how this happened, but why this happened, this virgin would have a child. So as we read this text, help us, Father, to dig deeply into it, both with mind and heart, transform our thinking, help us to think your thoughts after you. We do pray that you would ever form Christ in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in one sense, you know, this narrative that we're reading, this story is so homey. It's like so bucolic, right? I mean, is there anything more provincial than, you know, the baby Jesus? In a couple of months, homes, especially my neighborhood, goes kind of crazy throughout the area. Well, dawn the nativity, right? There'll be nativities all over the place. Hot cocoa will warm our Palettes while Mary and Joseph and the wise men will warm our hearts. People will be singing carols. Churches will be singing about the virgin birth. It all seems so light, right? It all seems so harmless. You know, they make movies about it. Never, the movie's really never about it, but they make Christmas movies. Unlike other stories or teachings in the Bible... The, the virgin birth doesn't generally incur, you know, the bile often associated with controversial theology, at least not within the boundaries of the church. We don't have big arguments on the corner about the virgin birth. It, it is such a non-negotiable that it's just left to kind of sit over there in the corner and just peacefully relax. It's not like eschatology. Right, where everybody, all Christians have different views and we have to have debates and fight it out. It's not like pneumatology, right? Oh, is, do we speak in tongues? Do we not speak in tongues? And Christians fight it out. It's different. The, the virgin birth doesn't have those kinds of arguments. On this topic, the disagreements aren't between Christians. If you're going to find disagreement, it's been between Christian and non-Christian. Tomorrow, and I'm going to slightly alter a phrase uttered by John Calvin, and he was really talking about another topic, but I thought it really applied to the, to the virgin birth. He said, boldness in disputing the virgin birth is the mother of unbelief. 
If you don't believe this, you don't believe. In his study on the virgin birth, J. Gresham Machen, and my, just get cozy because my notes are kind of long, but Machen wrote a whole book on the virgin birth, so just be glad I'm not going to do a whole book here. But in his book, he concluded, quote, there can be no doubt that at the close of the second century, the virgin birth of Christ was regarded as an absolutely essential part of the Christian belief by the Christian church in all parts of the known world. It's a non-negotiable. The Apostles' Creed, which we as a church will occasionally recite, is a very brief statement of orthodoxy. In other words, it's pretty short, but if you don't believe what's in the Apostles' Creed, you're outside of orthodox, the pale of orthodoxy, right? So to, to somehow land outside that is to land outside of the Christian faith. It, but it's short, the Apostles' Creed. But as brief as it is, you know what it includes? The virgin birth. We read, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So there it is. It's like, you know, we're going to put together just a few words that express the Christian faith. Got to include this. And you know what's amazing about the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed as well is that it goes right from the virgin birth to what? Pilate and the crucifixion. It, it leaves out Jesus' whole life. You'd think they'd say something about what he did during the course of his life. They're like, no, no. What really is important, if we're going to like nail this down and summarizes it, summarize the virgin birth, and then we go right to the resurrection. All this to say that, biblically speaking, the virgin birth is highly significant. Little wonder that it is often assailed by the world and by heretics. They want to deny it or morph it into something that it isn't. You know, in my research this last couple of weeks on this, I was looking at how the world responds to the virgin birth, you know, and often, to be honest, very smugly. That, you know, there's a whole group of people who believe that a baby was born to a virgin. And then what they'll do is they'll put up an entire lineup of how many myths and fables have a virgin birth as part of their religious system. Krishna was born of Devaki. Buddha was born of Maya. In Siam, we have a religious figure who was born of Kodam, virgin birth, Laozi, from a Chinese religion in 3500 B.C., was said to be born of a virgin, and on and on and on. They all have, well, you know, Jesus just needs to get in line with all the other virgin births is the argument. So what do we do with that? You know, I mean, I was um, preaching at the rescue mission here in Wilmington, and I was talking about the virgin birth, and some guy in the back row got up, and he's like, well, what about Mithra, you know, the, the virgin birth of Mithra, you know, and I... You know, and he kind of hit me with it, and now i got to kind of deal with Mithra and all that stuff. And I was thinking, you know, you so confidently believe in the virgin birth of Mithra, and yet you doubt the virgin birth of Jesus. Well, a couple of things. First of all, if the amount of scholarship 
dedicated to denying the virgin birth of Christ was applied to the virgin birth of all of these fables and myths. None of them would stand the review. But nobody goes after them. Nobody doubts them because it doesn't really matter. It's the virgin birth of Christ that lays claim on our lives. That's the one we got to get out of the room. Secondly, and I would just say this, and I don't want to go too far in this, but as an apologist, I just feel like you need to give an answer to these things, and that is this. That the promise of God in Genesis 3 was that through the seed of the woman, the enemy of God's people would be defeated. And we all, and right away, we see a miraculous birth with Abraham, right, and Sarah. So it makes sense that other religions or myths or fables, recognizing that miraculous births are part of the way God would redeem, that they would include a miraculous birth in their system. But I'll tell you this, the Christian faith goes all the way back to the beginning, and none of them do. People will say, you know, and I've heard this, you know, that a lot of myths have a flood. You guys have your flood. Everybody's got their flood. And I'm like, well, okay. But if there was a flood then it seems like a bunch of myths and fables and historic accounts would talk about a flood. So the fact that they're mentioning a flood doesn't discount the biblical record of the flood because a flood happened. And apparently a lot of people in history know that it happened. So don't try to get lost in the crowd of floods or the crowd of virgin births. But it's not just the world that will assail the virgin birth. Heresies will either deny or de-emphasize the importance of the virgin birth. Modern-day pop theologian Rob Bell argued that it wouldn't really be a big deal if we discovered that Jesus had an earthly father named Larry. As I was reading this, he's like, if we, you know, and this kind of shows where this particular person really places his faith he said, if we found undeniable DNA evidence that Jesus had an earthly father. And I'm like, okay, well, you just told us who your daddy is. It, and it's not the scriptures. So get out of the pulpit. Find someplace else. Because in the pulpit, the word of God is what's undeniable. Not whatever findings the scientists might make. But his argument is, it wouldn't be catastrophic if we found out that Jesus was born of Larry and Mary. Because, and his argument is, Jesus would still be the best possible way to live. Which also demonstrates that this guy, you know, and I'm not to jump on him, but he's got a big following and he's kind of current and we need to be aware. He doesn't get it. He doesn't understand the Christian faith. Should we follow Jesus in the way he lives? Sure, but the essence of the Christian faith isn't looking how Jesus lived and us living that way. The essence of the Father sending the Son was to save us, not to provide somebody for us to imitate. Not that we shouldn't imitate Him. But the deeper message is the message that we heard a minute ago from John the Baptist, right? He didn't say, behold the example of how we have to live, right? What did he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's the heart. And when we remove the Holy Spirit, and make it Larry, that all crumbles, by the way. All right, so let me answer, I'm going to seek to answer four questions in this short narrative, and I do pray that 
these will go deep in our minds, deep in our hearts, and that won't just be like intellectual property, but it'll actually be something that will redeem us and sanctify us and help us to think in a more praise-oriented manner. Number one, does the Bible teach that Mary was actually a virgin? Because that's argued even by people with Bibles in their hands. Number two, how did that happen? How did the virgin birth happen? Number three, and most importantly, why is it critical to our faith? And then finally, how did Mary respond to all of this? First, we read, then Mary said to the angel, how can this be, since I do not know a man? All right, so he's like going, you're going to have a baby, and she's like going, I've never been intimate. How's that going to happen? I was watching a movie not too long ago, and there were four big stars all playing rabbis who were about to rob a bank. And there was dialogue going on, and it wasn't really supposed to be heard, but, you know, it's like they're just talking, and they're trying to be, like, kind of into script and what have you. And I'm like, these guys are talking about Isaiah. They're, they're, these guys are quoting Scripture, and they actually got into the passage that was our call to worship today. We read in Isaiah 7:14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Just for those of you who aren't like, you know, Bible scholars, this was all written about 600 years before the birth of Christ. But it's used in the New Testament. When we talk about, you know, Old Testament, New Testament, it's used in the New Testament going, this is talking about Jesus. But in these, the dialogue of these four fake rabbis, they spoke about scribal errors. You know, oh, the scribes made an error. But their point was that the word for virgin and you'll hear this, can just be for a young woman. Okay, now I don't want, you know, I'm looking at my notes, and I'm like, well, I don't want to go too far into arguing why that's untrue, but I will, well, just hang in there with me, and I'm, or some of you aren't interested, you can check out for a minute and get the notes later. But let me just tell you why that's not true. First of all, the word virgin, virgin in in Hebrew, Alma, um, is a word that occurs nine times in the Old Testament, and every time you can figure out what it means in context, it's referring to a virgin. Okay, so there's that. The Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Old Testament, which was written in Hebrew, written 300 years before Christ, which was used by Christ and used by his followers, when they get that word, Alma, and they translate it into Greek, you know what word they use? Parthenos. It sounds familiar, right? The Parthenon. Clearly, and nobody disagrees with this, that word means virgin. So when they translated it, they're like, this word needs to be translated virgin. One last thing, and there's way more that we can get into in this, but here's the deal. It's a sign. Right? The verse says, God is going to give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will be with child. If it's just a young woman with child, how is that a sign? I guarantee you right now, some young woman at some local hospital is having a baby. It's only a sign. You understand what a sign is, right? A sign is something that is extraordinary, supernatural, miraculous. Not something that just happens that is wonderful, 
So it's hardly a sign if it's just, and I don't want to you know, belittle the idea of childbirth, but if it's somebody having a baby, then it's really not a sign. It's just something wonderful taking place. Now, let me add to this argument. In the New Testament, we're already told that Gabriel was sent to a virgin. So when, once you get into the New Testament, it's undeniable. Now, when Mary says she does not know a man, I'm guessing everybody knows what that means, right? I don't, do I have to get into the weeds on, on that one? All right, very good. And she's not saying, I don't know one yet, but I'm going to know one in a little while, and then we can have the baby, because the context does not allow that. Neither is she saying, I'm going to commit to perpetual virginity, which is where the Roman Catholics go with that passage. All she's saying is, all right, you just told me something pretty amazing. How's that going to happen? Because I know the normal way that happens, and I'm really not a candidate for that. It's, it's what, what we all recognize the passage says. Well, when she says, by the way, how can this be? And we've had a lot of questions about this. Remember a few weeks ago how Zacharias was struck mute and probably deaf because he kind of doubted the angel? And so, you know, Abraham fell down on his face and laughed when God said, you're going to have a child. And here, you know, he didn't get as much trouble as Zacharias did. And here, Mary is like, how can this be? And the more I dug into this, the more people said, look, this is her just kind of not doubting but going, can you explain to me how this is going to take place? So it's not a doubting. It's more of a, can you um, give me the blueprints on this little plan, Gabriel, that you seem to have? It's more amazement. It's more wonder. It's like, spell it out. And that leads us to our second question. How did this happen? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also, that Holy One who is born will be called the Son of God. So, how would Mary have a child since she has not known a man? We, you know, we like to speak of the miracle of childbirth, right? And as beautiful as it is, as wonderful as it is, just so you understand, technically, it's not a miracle. I hate to rain on people's parade. And if I'm, in the, if I'm in the maternity ward and somebody's like, oh, a miracle, I'm not going to go, technically, that's not a miracle. <laughs> you know, I'm getting sensitive to my environment here. But God has ordered a universe, a creation, where certain biological and physical things take place. He's created the laws of physics. He's created the laws of biology. He's created the laws of all things. And those things kind of operate upon themselves the way God has ordained for them to take place. And it is in the course of these natural affairs that people have babies. Having said that, though, having kind of taken childbirth and made it kind of normal, childbirth is a mysterious wonder, even according to the Bible. The wisest man who ever lived, other than Jesus himself, spoke of the wonder of the unborn baby and our inability to get it our inability to grasp what's going on. Ecclesiastes 11.5, this is Solomon. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. 
I love how the wisest man in the world tells us, and I'm sure he's included in that, you guys just don't get it. Not only, you know, the wonder of childbirth and the way the spirit comes upon the bones in the womb, you don't really know anything when it gets right down to it. It's very common for people to try to justify, by the way, the killing of a baby in the womb to speak as if they know things they don't really know. They, they will veil that dark deed with words like zygote, embryo, fetus. They're like, oh, I got another word for it, therefore it's not a human being. And I wish I were only kidding when I say that there are other people, and this has happened historically, that want to add to zygote and embryo and fetus, toddler. Now, I mean, part of me laughs at that, but part of me is like, that is a reality. We just need to find a different word for it so that we psychologically feel comfortable in doing what we're doing. The psalmist writes of the unique prerogative that God has when it comes to the actions of the womb, what's going on in the womb. We read in Psalm 139, 15 and 16, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. See, get the idea here. It's like God is the only one who really sees what's going on because it's made in secret. We're being, we're being weaved together in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. It's this idea that God already knew us while we were developing. He knew us when we were a zygote, an embryo, a fetus. Friends, we live in a world, and just don't, don't be bullied by this, right? Don't allow yourself to fall into this trap. We live in a world where people think that because they see how things work, they therefore know how things work. When it gets right down to it, the finest minds cannot answer the infinite regress of the why questions. Solomon is right. They don't get it. We don't get it. Now, there are two whys, I'm saying why in two different ways. There are two why questions that mere human wisdom is incapable of answering. One is the why in terms of biological or physical function. The other is the why in terms of purpose. In terms of biology, in terms of physical function, in terms of physics, we generally can answer the why question if it's a penultimate answer. But penultimate is the second to last, right? We can start answering questions, but if somebody keeps asking them, and it's usually the kids, right? They ask the hardest questions. We get to our end of ourselves pretty quick. I remember I've mentioned this before, but I'll mention it again because it's one of the greatest theolo theological lessons my dad ever taught me. When I was a kid, I said, Dad, why is grass green? Why, does it, why is it green? And he said, son, because of chlorophyll. And he probably went back to playing cards or whatever he was doing at the time. And I thought about it, and I'm like, well, why does chlorophyll make grass green? And apparently he had reached the end of his acumen on photosynthesis. And he gave me the theologically most accurate answer that probably he ever gave me, and I'm going to give it to you. And you know what the answer was? Because God made it that way. 
And we can, we can have all sorts of other, you know, somebody might go, well, wait a minute, I know all about photosynthesis. All right, so maybe you can answer it eight more times. But when it gets right down to it, you're not, you're not understanding. We don't understand something as simple as gravity. Like, we all kind of know it's there, we all depend upon it, but they'd sit, they can't simply figure it out. The fact that I see it doesn't mean I get it. But that's the way this world works. And they will use language and dialogue and a vocabulary that will shut you up. Just, it's, it's professing to be wise. They become fools. Now, when it comes to the why in terms of purpose, you see there's, one, there's why in terms of physical, then there's, well, you know, why are we here? You know, what, why... What is my purpose for existence? The world oftentimes is not so quick on that one. The world oftentimes will go, yeah, I don't, I don't really know. But they don't always do that. Sometimes they'll give again. They'll say, well, you know, we're here to help everybody. Well, why should we help everybody? Because it's the right thing to do. How do I know it's the right thing to do? What if the right thing to do is for me to make myself number one, even if other people are hurt? Like, you get into that conversation, and that dissolves pretty rapidly, but it's not tough for the Christian. Let me tell you why we're here. We're here to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. If you read your Bibles, that's what you're going to find out. It shouldn't be confusing, at least to us. Well, when it comes to the virgin birth, the world is quick to ridicule. They just can't get their arms around how otherwise moderately intelligent people, although, you know, if you're a churchgoer and you watch a movie or read a book or watch a TV show, whoever's playing you in the movie is not going to be very smart. They love to just kind of have you be a foolish person who doesn't get stuff. And the world can't get their arms around how moderately intelligent people will believe that which is contrary to the biological system that we all seem to be observing even though they don't understand the biological system themselves. R.C. Sproul had a humorous, yet I think very profound response to the criticisms of the naturalist when it comes to the virgin birth, and this is what he said. He goes, without the power of God, there can be no egg, there can be no sperm, there can be no life at all. The great miracle comes from the naturalist today who tells us that the world popped into existence on its own power. That's the virgin birth of the whole universe. <laughs> I have to say, I miss that guy. So how did the virgin birth take place? Well, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. That's the explanation given. The same verb there, you know, the Holy Spirit coming upon you is seen in Acts 1.8. You know Acts 1.8? where the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you'll be my witnesses, you know, in Judea, Samaria, the, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost regions of the world. It's the Holy Spirit working in terms of the evangelistic power of God. Interesting, and I, mean, I, I didn't pursue this, but interesting that the same word to describe the virgin birth is to describe you when you proclaim the gospel. That's the power of God. I think it'd be overly ambitious to try to get into the detailed mechanics of the means by which this event takes place, but I just want to note that there are two things in this passage happening. One is that the Holy Spirit comes upon her, and the other is that the power of the highest will overshadow. 
Now, you get into that, and you're like going, well, okay, exactly how, how does it work? It could be that the shadow, like Peter's shadow, functioned in the miracle. Or Matthew Henry offered this as a potential answer, that the shadow was designed to, quote, conceal it, that is, conceal the miracle from those that would too curiously observe the motions of it and pry into the mystery of it. In other words, God's going, you know what, this is just not for you to see. And I don't know about you, but that doesn't bother me if God says, you know what, there are certain things that you don't need to know. And that's not being unreasonable, that's not being illogical, that's not kind of having us take a leap of faith into something that doesn't make any sense. It's God's way of kind of going, there are certain things that I can do and will do that you're not going to be able to get. You know what, as a young apologist, that used to bother me. I need to know everything. As I get older, I'm quite glad that the God who has saved me is beyond my intellectual grasp. You don't want to serve a God that you have entirely figured out. Because if you have him entirely figured out, that means that he's, forgive me to put it this way, that he's as dumb as you are. You understand? Yeah, you don't want that. As for me, I find no difficulty in believing that the God who spoke all things into being by the word of his mouth could create life in the womb of Mary. So often our thoughts about God are just too small. Is is this not the same Holy Spirit who was hovering over the face of the waters at creation? The conception was miraculous. As verse 37 will aptly state, for with God, nothing is impossible. So, why is this important? Third question. Now, I'm going to go very brief here, and just forgive me, because like I said, Machen wrote a whole book on this, and there's a temptation to go further and further and further. It's a huge doctrine, but I'm just going to kind of touch on it for you to get an idea of why this is such a critical element to the Christian faith. First, some people will argue, and perhaps you've heard this, it was the first argument I heard from my high school government teacher, that it was necessary that Jesus avoid the line of Adam, right? It had to be a virgin birth because the curse of Adam could not reach him because he needed to be sinless. And, and although it does, and it makes some sense, right? Because how did sin enter the world, Paul says? Through Adam. Through Adam, sin entered the world. And so if you've got this Adamic curse going from generation to generation, and, you, and Jesus has to be born sinless, you know, you've got to go get it. You've got to get Adam's seed out of the picture. The only problem with that is there's no verse in the Bible that says that. I mean, you can conclude that. I don't have a big problem with it but it's not something that the Bible clearly teaches. By the way, the same problem could potentially exist with the fact that Jesus was, was made, the, the, the human Jesus was made from the substance of Mary. And, and Mary was a sinner. But just so you know, the Roman Catholic Church recognizes this difficulty, so what do they do? They create the Immaculate Conception. They're like, oh, no, no, Mary was not a sinner. And so now, now you've opened a door and you're going to just keep going down a road. What we have to recognize is that all of this is a bit uh, speculative. Suffice it to say that the Holy Spirit can create a holy child 
who is free from the effects of sin. But the holiness of the child, because we're told that child will be holy, though including sinlessness, I just mentioned sinlessness, his holiness goes far beyond sinlessness. Matter of fact, the emphasis, at least in the record of the virgin birth, is not in his sinlessness. Is Jesus sinless? Absolutely. But the focus on the virgin birth is not the sinlessness of Christ. What we do see emphasized in this sacred event is that Jesus will be called the Son of God. Now, again, we talked last week about aren't we all sons and daughters of God? It's different. We are sons and daughters by adoption. He is the firstborn. He is the one who's the true Son of God. And it was the claim of being the Son of God that equated him with God himself, which the current Jewish society viewed as a capital crime. What he did was worthy of death. We read in John 19.7, the Jews, talking to Pilate here, answered him, and they said, we have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. So this idea that Jesus was the son of God is assigning deity or godhood to himself, therefore he must die. You see, the prophecy from Isaiah that he will be called Emmanuel, okay? The the, the virgin will have a son, and he will be called Emmanuel. That's the focus, right? And what does Emmanuel mean? God with us. And it doesn't mean God on our side, right? It means he's actually going to be here. The emphasis of the birth of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ, The great, if I could put it this way, offense of the gospel is that God is entering his own history. And those living out that history simply don't desire his company. Those of you who are parents, you know what it feels like when you, if you have kids, when you walk in the room and they would prefer that you're not there? You think they're doing right things? You think they're being good? Are they doing their homework? When I lived in a dorm in college, we had, I had a hard time with my own pronouns here, like you or me or us, you know, because I'm like, I'm kind of included in this. We had RAs. I don't know if they still call them RAs, resident attendants. So you're in the dorm, you got an RA, and they were often students, but they were also employees of the university. And their job was to make sure things didn't get out of hand. And the more ill-behaved the students, the less excited, I'm going to change the pronoun here, we were about having the RA in our wing, right? They're a student, they're one of us, but they're also somebody else. And if they're there, we got to watch our P's and Q's, they're just not welcome. The friends, the zenith of love and truth, and beauty, and holiness, and power, and wisdom, and goodness, and justice was dropped into the pale of human darkness. And we don't like him in our wing. Yet having him in our wing is our only hope. 
It always makes me think of when you ever have a bird get stuck in your garage or something, and you know the bird's going to die of a heart attack, and you're trying to help it, and it's just avoiding you, and you don't want to kill the bird. You know, it's not a spider. Spiders must die. You just want to get the bird out, and it's all kind of like, leave me alone, leave me alone. It doesn't know that you think I'm your enemy, but I'm your only hope to get you out of this predicament. We have that same view toward Christ. He's there, and we're like, no, no, leave me alone, leave me alone. And he's like, no, I, I understand that my holiness is an offense to you, but I'm your only hope. Jesus did not come into the world, we're told, to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. People will criticize the virgin birth, they'll criticize Christ, but he's like, I'm coming into the world as the Savior, not the judge. The world is already under judgment. Why is the virgin birth critical to our redemption? Because it is necessary to our redemption that we have a mediator, that we have a representative who is truly man, substance of Mary, and truly God from the Holy Spirit. Again, the, the, the sinlessness is important, but what's really important, what's really emphasized in the accounts of the virgin birth is that God has arrived. But he is also truly man. Truly man, truly God. Now, this shoots us into another non-negotiable of the Christian faith, right? Like if I'm, you know, when we interview people to become Members, you know, I'll often ask, do you believe in the virgin birth? Do you believe that Jesus was born of a virgin? But the other, one of the other questions that I'll ask is, do you believe that Jesus was truly God and truly man? That's another one of those non-negotiables. Now, that shoots us into a much longer sermon. And I realized that when I was writing it. Even though you all seem to be very attentive, thank you. But in the interest of brevity, I'm going to answer that question through our catechism, which I think is very biblical. Because you might go, okay, so what I'm saying, just so you get it, what I'm saying is the emphasis of the virgin birth is that God is with us, of the substance of Mary, and yet truly God. And then the next question is, why is that so important? And again, I'm going to answer that through our catechism, and I, get, I, I, I think the catechism is very biblical, but I'm not going to go through all of the proof texts for that. Question 38 in our larger catechism, why was it requisite that the mediator, that is Jesus, should be God? Answer, it was requisite that the mediator should be God. I mean, and this is so wonderful and, and powerful, and I'm almost ashamed of myself how fast I'm going to say it, that he might sustain and keep the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death give worth and efficacy to his sufferings, obedience and intercession, and to satisfy God's justice, procure his favor, purchase a peculiar people, give his spirit to them, conquer all their enemies, and bring them into everlasting salvation. That is something only God could do, only God could complete. Question 39, well, why was it requisite that the mediator should be a man, the substance of Mary? It was requisite that the mediator should be a man, that he might advance our nature, perform obedience to the law, suffer and make intercession for us in our nature, and have a fellow feeling of our infirmities, right? From Hebrews, right? 
Like he, we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness that we might receive the adoption of sons and have comfort and access with boldness unto the throne of grace. And then finally, question 40, why was it requisite that the mediator should be God and man in one person? Answer, it was requisite that the mediator who was to reconcile God and man should himself be both God and man, and this in one person, that the proper works of each nature might be accepted of God for us and relied on us by us as the works of the whole person. I recognize there's a lot of meat there, but let me just say, one of the non-negotiables of the Christian faith is that Jesus is truly God and truly man. We needed a mediator, we needed a representative, and we needed a representative who had the power and authority of God himself. You don't want somebody who can only, who can only represent one side. He represents both sides. And I, I don't know if this is just, you know, extraordinary providence, but, you know, and all those other virgin births and all the other religions of the world, you know what, God somehow providentially has simply not allowed this to be part of anything but the Christian faith. It is only in the Christian faith that we have this type of internal consistency, the consent of all the parts of Scripture. It's almost, it's almost a miracle the way God has presented something that is so internally consistent and powerful. Well, finishing up, verses 36 through 38. Now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relatives, this is still Gabriel speaking, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I, I just found it interesting in a way that he would go, By the way, you know, your cousin. Some pretty amazing stuff's happening to her, too. Just, I want to go visit her. I don't know. Some people think that he's hinting to go visit her because in the next passage, she goes and visits her. But sometimes it's God recognizes our own weakness, and he will kind of utilize other events to help us be strong in things that we would otherwise be weak. And so she, Mary might, you know, Mary, like I said, she's probably a teenager. And he's kind of, you know, the end result of this conversation is she's going to go visit her cousin who's much older than her. And one of the things there is to recognize that with God, nothing is impossible. But in conclusion, you know, we, you know Mary makes the statement, like, let it be according to your word. I'm on board. And we all look at that in hindsight and go, well, of course she says that. You know, look at what happened. But, you know, friends, you can't read the Bible and somehow extract the humanity of the people in the Bible. She's a 16-year-old girl. And whatever we think of the law of God today, the law of God in the Old Testament, if you, it could very well be the death penalty for her to be involved in an intimate relationship outside of marriage. So, so Mary, as we're going to see in the Magnificat, is a very smart person. And it's, like she, it's not like she isn't thinking about the potential difficulties that are before her. The criticism, the ridicule, the heartache, not to mention the physical pain that is all before her. This is all going to happen. I don't doubt, even in a heartbeat, she's like going, this is going to be a rough road. 
This is going to be very difficult. But what's her answer? Let it be. What you've said, let it happen. You get the feeling that the angel is quite satisfied with the answer because it says, and he departs. Because he wasn't doing that earlier with like Zacharias, right? He's like, hey, wait a minute, man. Right? Why are you doubting? Like he just is like, enough said. And he walks away. And as I look at that, my prayer for myself and for all of us is that we would all have a similar faithful acquiescence to the providence of God that we might always, body and soul, place ourselves at the disposal of a God who may put us through difficult times, recognizing that our Father in heaven is all good, all love, and all wise. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would so value this magnificent work of redemption that the eternal Son of God became flesh, and as we continue to study this work of redemption throughout Luke and Acts, that we would appreciate, first and foremost, above all things, what has been done for us. But we would also then, Father, query. We would ask, how then should we live? What, are, what should our response be to these wonderful things that we might, Father, in this example, be, follow the example of Mary to say, let it be your will. We're ready, Father to be at your disposal. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.